Today's episode of Setting the Edge is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash setting edge. That's audibletrial.com slash setting edge. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash setting edge. Episode 72 of the Set in the Edge podcast. I'm Justice Mosqueda. You can find me on Twitter at J1MOSQ. I'm here with my co-host Charles McDonald. You can find him on Twitter at 4Verts. And we're here with a very special guest, Warren Sharp. You can find him on Twitter at SharpFootball. Say what's up to people, Warren. Hey, what's going on, guys? Happy to join you and uh, looking forward to our conversation tonight. Yeah, uh, so if you don't follow Warren, you definitely should because... If you're a visual learner like I am, I find his charts very useful and just kind of breaking down uh, ideas that can be complicated in a simplistic view and easy to look at way. So I appreciate that from Warren's work. And uh, we I really just wanted to talk to him about uh, some of the questions or some of the, I guess, topics surrounding this upcoming draft class in a couple of weeks and really just how the impact of Saquon Barkley's value versus the value of the quarterbacks kind of compares with each other because, you know, there's still rumors that Barkley could go number two to the Giants. Uh, he could go number four to the Browns. But what I want to ask you is what have your numbers found or numbers that you've looked at and referenced that suggest to, I guess, the running game being devalued in today's NFL? That would make a guy like Saquon Barkley – even though he is an excellent running back prospect, not worth being a top five pick? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, uh, particularly for this season because of what we have with Saquon Barkley and kind of the, the the statistics that he was able to put up at Penn State and kind of just the, the physical specimen that he is. Everybody is, is certainly talking about him. Um, I am, I'm not like so far along the line of team anti running back that you know i think that they are completely unhelpful completely unuseful i I do think it's pretty evident um since the 2010 hit rules came into play where you know during the middle of the season the commissioner levied uh fines on players uh running across the middle you can't hit the receivers defenseless receivers protecting the quarterback in the pocket like they started instituting that right in the middle of the 2010 season and so teams were like it was difficult for some teams to adjust immediately um, and then what we started to see, not so much 2011, but more so like 2012, 2013 and onward, is, is just the spike in efficiency from passing that you really don't see quite as much when you're running the football. And there's so much more of a correlation nowadays to uh, winning games via by strong passing attacks than there is with strong running attacks. Um, you generally tend to correlate rushing with wins because you're able to run when you have a lead. But in terms of the predictive nature of it, uh, passing success has a lot more indicators that will show that it's more correlate, correlate and predictive to uh, winning football games in, in the modern era since the 2010 uh, season. But 
I do think that there are times when teams should be running the ball. Um, teams should be running the ball more than they do currently in the red zone. Um, because when you get down there and you spread out the defense and they are thinking past, you will have opportunities to run the ball. Um, and, and that's the main thing for me. I mean, when I look at football from a holistic perspective, it's all a, it's, it's very simple. Do something the other team doesn't think you're going to do. If you become too predictable in what you're doing, a intelligent defense, which most of them are varying levels of intelligent, will be able to anticipate that and then limit the efficiency there. So you have to try to do things that the other team isn't necessarily thinking that you're going to do. And there's a bigger edge towards running the football in the red zone uh, over the last few years than people tend to think. Um, they think, well, you just spread them out, get all these one-on-one matchups in, in the passing game. And while there is a lot of value there, there still is solid value if you keep a running back out on the field and you run out of a couple of various different personnel groupings that are the most effective. Um, running on second and short, for example, my, my primary objective there is I want the uh, team that I had on the field on first and 10, if we get an eight or nine yard gain, I want to keep my running back on the field. I want to keep all the personnel there. I want to get to the line of scrimmage quickly. I want to have a couple of hand signals that I'll bring out one or two different types of run plays. And I want to hand the ball off to my running back quickly. And those plays have like such a slam dunk rate of success to just convert that first down. They hardly ever result in turnovers, which a lot of the second and short shot plays that all the commentators say, Hey, let's take a great time to take a shot down the field, second and short. Like those have a very high interception rate and I don't want to turn the ball all over. I want to maintain possession. Um, so those are two areas. Now with regard to Saquon Barkley, I mean, he, he certainly is a stud, but the way that I think he would be able to have the best career in the NFL is if a team who drafts him has the intention of limiting the rushing carries and maximizing the receiving carries. And by limiting, I don't mean like, you know, minimizing completely. I just mean if, if you're going to give him, let's say, 100, 100 touches on the ball, don't do, you know, 85 runs to 15 targets. I want you to be doing a much closer percentage down towards 60-40, 55-45, because I believe that you will maximize his career and increase his health if you get him the ball with space so he's not able to be tackled by the uh, defensive linemen or linebackers in the middle of the field and keep running into those brick walls. Um, I, but this is like a, this is a quarterback draft. I mean, uh, a lot of a lot of guys predicted it when we saw the the class that was evolving before this year and even before last season, the class that might come out, right? Like I think in 2016, Josh Allen sort of uh, projected himself onto the stage with the year that he had out of Wyoming. Uh, and, and then of course we saw, what was it, the Rose Bowl with uh, with Darnold and and how good he looked, you know, prior to last season. And then we, we knew Rose. And so there's just, it always kind of set itself up to be a great quarterback draft. And there's also a number of other key players that you need to win games, offensive linemen, defensive linemen, DBs that are very important that would, I think, project a lot better for success than a team going to try to draft a player, even especially as he is, like Saquon Barkley. So um, while I am very, um, uh, very aware of the efficiencies that are 
generated via the passing game in the modern NFL. I think there are great and appropriate times to run the football. I think teams need to be targeting their running backs more, especially on early downs. Uh, They produce a better success rate even than some wide receiver targets on early downs. And the interception rate is extremely low when you're targeting the running backs on early downs as opposed to wide receivers. The other time teams need to be throwing the ball more to running backs is when the quarterback is under pressure. My analysis the last couple of years when I'm looking at uh, times when a quarterback is receiving pressure, his success rate and the interception rate is substantially better throwing the ball to a running back than it is to a wide receiver. Um, and, and so like trying to fit the ball to a wide receiver when you're under pressure te- typically isn't great. The other thing I think just I'm obviously going on a tangent here, guys. I apologize. But the other thing that I think is that over the next few years, it's fine to talk about what we've seen in the past, but over the next few years, it's going to continue that direction towards passing efficiency. We just saw the NFL modify the catch rule okay, to make receptions a little bit easier and more obvious, less, um, you know, you have to do this and that. Like it, They're trying to make it simple. They're still going to have problems with it, but they're trying to make it simple. They're also screwing around with the lowering of the helmet with, with hits. And so how will they leverage that onto running backs during run plays? Like it's very difficult to say, but I think both of those rules will do nothing more than just further emphasize that passing is going to be more efficient, even into the future, more so than running the football. And for that reason, I mean, it's hard to just justify taking a running back at the position, like a top five pick. I, I just don't think a team should do that. And that's one thing, the, just the rule changes that we've talked about on this podcast a little bit, where um, even if you look at uh, just something simple like uh, AYA, right, adjusted yards per attempt, and if you look at the difference between 2003 and 2004, there's a larger gap between the advancement from 2003 to 2004 than the advancement from any season since I think it was 1979 to 2003. So, it, you know, passing efficiency isn't – hasn't been a linear thing, right, throughout the entire uh, history of the NFL, even post-merger. Um, it really jumped up when offensive linemen started, you know, they were allowed to basically use their hands, right, instead of just punching people uh, in the late 70s. And then it went up again, you know, in the early 2000s with some of these passing efficiency rules. And it's just consistently gotten higher and higher um, just with more rule changes. Honestly, like you were saying, like the touchdown rule is probably going to change that. Um, the head hit rule is going to change that. So, um, when, when it comes to that, like, what, what do you think the future of running back is? So do you, th- do you think the future of running back is going to be, uh, basically pass catcher heavy when you're, with your, with what you're saying with, you know, early down, uh, running back targets is kind of like the inefficiency in the sport right now. Um, do you think we're, we're going to be at a spot where, you know, we're getting, I don't know, 12 carries a game or something like that with these running backs instead of, you know, 20 or whatever. Well, I, I, I always think that it goes back to one of the things I said before, like you have to try to attack the defense where they don't expect it. So if the defense is playing in, in personnel, that's going to limit your effectiveness to target the running back. Then I think, which, which basically means they're lighter up front in, mo- in most cases, right. uh, they're, like, they're a, like, a di- like, like a dime box or something like that. Exactly. They get a full on hat on a hat instead of having, you know, a nickel defense by definition has six guys covering six gaps. You sometimes, unless you have a fullback, you can't block that. Right. And so that's why when when the defense is playing to a manner that is dictating their weak against the run that on the ground, then that's when you need to try to 
uh, work those plays a little bit more heavily into your game plan. But the problem I think that um, modern and certainly the last couple of years, most offensive coordinators think is, is they think about, we're going to do what we do. Like, this is our personnel. This is the stuff we do best. Let's just execute. And they don't think about like, what is the defense trying to do against us? Like, first of all, game planning appropriately for that particular opponent. I think a lot of teams struggle with game planning the right way, but then you're at the game, the game plan is unfolding. And how is this defense now trying to attack me? And what should I be doing to adjust to attack the weaknesses that they are um, showing me on a play-by-play basis now that we're actually in the game? And so making these adjustments, I feel like a lot of teams don't make those enough. But um, to your point, I mean, I, I think the run game is always going to be an element of football. But I do think that the early down running back passes, um, those could go as far as, you know, the offensive coordinator's creativity. You know, right now we need to see a little mm-hmm. bit more, but we saw Kyle Shanahan, for, exa- for example, down in Atlanta. He did a lot, had a lot of success there. He went out and like he coveted Jarek McKinnon. He probably gave up too much to obtain Jarek McKinnon this past offseason, but we've noticed that with some of these young coordinators that become head coaches, like we know the lifespan in the NFL, it's very short. Like if you're a really young head coach and you suck early, like you could lose your job. And then there's kind of like a black eye on you for the immediate future. We saw something similar happen with Josh McDaniels, right? So if you can't like come out and prove it, so that's why these guys, like they're going out and aggressively trying to get this piece or two on offense that they think will really help their team. He went out aggressively, got Jarek McKinnon in there because we saw the same type of thing with Sean McVay um, with Brandon cooks. Cause he was looking at Brandon cooks uh, the prior year, but they couldn't get him. And then they got him obviously this year with the trade, but with, with Jarek McKinnon, I think they're going to be using him a lot in the passing game, hopefully on early downs. They were even using use check some last year, uh, especially on some nice wheel routes down the side. I mean, like, the, the key about the throwing the ball to the running back is it's especially useful if you've got the defense lined up to stop the run. And instead of running the ball, you actually throw the ball to your running back. Uh, but there are so many other ways that you can like we don't even have the analytics, hopefully with the uh, advent of all the teams now this season, seeing all the zebra data for everybody across the league we will have better understanding of the efficiency gained when you throw the ball to a running back, not just on a broken play, right? A broken pass play where you throw the ball to the running back, but more so a designed pass play to the running back if he's in the backfield versus if you split him out wide. Because that's one of the things that I really am looking forward to studying this year is the difference in efficiency uh, when he's in the backfield as a designated target versus split out wide. And we've got a number of guys in the NFL now who are being split out wide more often, you know, Kamara can be done, Christian McCaffrey, obviously, and, and some guys that are even older than that, that's, those are the young guns, right? But um, I'm excited to see where the running back pass can go. But look, if, if you don't, if you're paying a nominal amount for a running back, you're always going to need to run the ball when you're winning the game towards the end to kind of ice it, especially if you can run, like if you can run the ball in the fourth quarter, then run the ball. Like, there's no need to resort to the pass if you're having success running the ball and you're winning a game. So it's got, I mean, so much of this is going to depend on situation within the game, but I really do think that there's a lot of opportunities to be gained from running backs in the pass game 
that teams aren't maximizing right now. And I think in the future, they probably will because it's going to be more effective and efficient um, than some of the carries that they're giving these guys. So just kind of sticking on the notion of throwing the ball, I guess we, you know, very smooth segue there, but uh, we have uh, five quarterbacks or really, you know, even six, if you want to throw Mason Rudolph in there that are, you know, being hyped up, I guess, as the, the top five first-round quarterbacks in this draft with uh, Baker Mayfield, uh, Josh Rosen, uh, Sam Darnold, geez, Lamar Jackson, and Josh Allen. Uh, and I, really, in the minds of, I guess, more numbers and analytics people, Baker Mayfield seems like the number one, you know, clear-cut quarterback one in this draft, like easy-peasing uh pick but uh i just want to ask you if you kind of felt the same way seeing as you are a guy that uses a lot of numbers do you feel that baker mayfield is like the number one quarterback or do you think it's kind of hard to just use numbers to like project the nfl well this your question here uh couldn't have come uh, on a better day because like this is something i think that needs to be discussed and we're far enough ahead of the draft where it could have some legs and be meaningful, but like, I absolutely love analytics, right? I've got a sharp football stats, my website, it's all about analytics. People can go there for free. You look at the visualized data. Like I live and breathe analytics. I've got a background in math. Uh, I'm a licensed professional engineer. So like, I love math and numbers, but here's the problem when you're talking about, you know, comparing, Oh, let's look at all these top five guys and let's just compare, you know, yards per attempt yards per attempt under pressure, yards per attempt on third and long, yards per attempt on like any different, what, what is he throwing deeper down the field? Okay, the problem is this. Number one, football has a big issue. It's sample size. Like even if you look at an NFL team who plays 16 games, that's just a very small sample size to begin with. Um, and, and college teams play significantly fewer games. So you have a sample size issue. The other thing is, you have a severe competition level issue. I mean, a lot of these teams play a cupcake schedule for the first couple of games against competition that's obviously, you know, they, they're supposed to get wins in these games. And then they go and play their conference schedule. And some conferences are better than the others, to some extent, vastly different. And you can try to produce like a strength of schedule of, of like your overall opponents and that type of thing, what you feel uh, and, and some of these strength of schedules are okay and adequate, but now we have to dial that even a little bit further down. It's not just strength of opponent, but now we're, we just got to focus on what are these opponents against the run in the past? And what are these teams able to do against those opponents with the run in the past? Then you have to factor in the coaching. And this is the thing I think is so big because coaching to me is so important. We're in the fantasy era where everybody wants to talk about the players, but understanding and handicapping the coaches and the offensive coordinators and the play callers is more useful than just thinking, Hey, this is the skill set of this particular guy, because it's all about how he's going to be used, how he's going to be targeted. And that comes down to what the coach is going to do. And you can have an understanding of what they have done in the past, but like on a given week, what this guy's going to do, some guys are more predictable and than, than others. Some guys are more prone to doing the right thing than others um, and making the right calls that they should be making. But with Baker Mayfield, the trick is that 
I think his offensive coordinator, Lincoln Riley, who became his head coach his final year, is a mastermind. Like, I think he's genius level in terms of what he was what he was doing, what he was dialing up. I'm not just talking about like trick plays and things that had wide open receivers from time to time. I'm talking about like the way that he's designing this offense, the way that he is coaching Baker Mayfield, like the edges that Baker Mayfield had on a weekly basis because of Lincoln Riley. Just before they walk out on the field, after they use some motion uh, on a given play, like the immediate reads after that, the, the edges that Lincoln Riley is incorporating, giving him for a head start over that poor defensive coordinator that they're going to face on that given week, like the, the, the massive edge that's being delivered is vastly different than like what uh, Allen had out in Wyoming. Or what Lamar Jackson had down in Louisville. Like it's just you, you can't. It's hard to put a number on that. It's it's hard to just say, oh well, I'll just make an adjustment because he had Lincoln Riley. It's it's very difficult to make an adjustment and apply it to all of the statistics. And and then you factor in other things, right? Like some of which we discussed. But you, you've got the scheme. You've got the surrounding talent. Um, like on his team versus what Josh Allen had, especially his last year. Um in Wyoming. Then you've got like issues of like, what is the coach actually asking them to do? How much is he asking this player to do? So for the quarterback's perspective, like, like I said, I started, I love statistics. I love analytics, but I think it's just very difficult. I don't want to say disingenuous, but it's very difficult to try to say that here's how I rank these guys based on their stats. Like, let's look at this stat. Here's how these guys line up. Let's look at that stat. Here's how these guys line up. Um, and, and I really think like the optimal way to study quarterbacks transitioning from the college game to the pro game is to understand all of the, I call them environmental factors, like things that are going on around him that he doesn't actually do himself, right? Like the, the, the coaching and the play calls and the schemes and the talent and the schedule and what was asked of him, those types of things. Understand the entire context of that for a given week. Like, what is that context against the opponent that he's playing? Then watch the film and kind of try to allocate responsibility. Like, on this play, he had a great pass, but this guy was wide open because of the scheme that was used. Or, like, he looked off this guy and made a great read and threw it to this guy who was uh, had tight coverage, but he still hit a very accurate pass. Okay, a lot of that's going to be on Mayfield even though like his offensive coordinator is probably helping his assist him in the reads to make. And I think it's still, I mean, somebody, somebody was arguing with me on Twitter about like, Oh, what about under pressure? Like that, that's a stat that's universal, right? Like if a quarterback's under pressure, like you're obviously being rushed and flustered. What is his yards per attempt or passer rating in those situations that should be comparable. But the difference is like Lincoln Riley, no, is probably programmed with, with Baker Mayfield. Here's what I want you to do when you're being pressured. Here's the places that you need to go. These are the hot routes. He's going to design hot routes that are maximized. He's also going to probably have a better anticipation pre-snap of whether the defense is going to provide pressure or not on that play based upon his blocking scheme and be able to signal into Allen a appropriate play so that even if he's pressured, they still have a really good chance of having success on that play. Whereas some offense coordinators around college football aren't going to be quite as advanced. And so the quarterback's going to have to just freaking like do a little bit more of what Josh Allen does, just like make up his mind, like try to elude this guy like Ben Rosberger style and then chuck the ball down the field. 
Um, and those, the success rate on plays like that is very hit or miss. Um, so I'm not trying to say that I don't like Baker Mayfield. I like Baker Mayfield. I think he's got a lot of potential. I think that there are a lot of shorter quarterbacks in the NFL that uh, wrongly get a, you know, a bad, a bad uh, case put against them just because of their height. I think a lot of these guys work their ass off and uh, overcome things that some of the taller, you know, lankier six foot six Brock Osweiler types like don't do they, they it's just not ingrained in them to be quite as uh, a dog so to speak uh, as some of these shorter guys who have a chip on their shoulders and and so I have nothing to say negatively about his stature any of that type of thing I think if you can play you can play um, and I do think that Baker Mayfield can play but I just think that when we're talking about statistics particularly especially from a quarterback I mean it applies elsewhere too but you know when you're talking about a college quarterback with so many different colleges, well, 130, how many we got right now across the nation, division one playing against varying levels of competition with varying levels of coaches and uh, various levels of scrutiny on those coaches. And it's just very difficult to compare statistics. And I know we live in an era where that's the commonplace and that's what we have to do to try to get a level playing field. Hey, how's this guy compared to that guy? But um, if you're an NFL team, on a franchise that's worth multiple billions of dollars, you cannot just simply look at statistics. And I know they do great film study too. I'm not trying to say, suggest that they don't, but like from an outsider's perspective, you cannot simply expect that we can like accurately attribute these statistics to these guys and then compare them you have to dig so, so, so much deeper. And it's more than just the film study. You have to understand the context with the film study. Um, it, it's really like an art form, I think, as opposed to something that you can um, just put a, put a number on and, and make an adjustment for some of these um, environmental factors. Yeah, so this seems like a lot of this seems like a prime example of like fun, like signal versus noise, right? Like being able to actually like isolate data to prove um, like what you actually want to know. You know what I mean? Like just tr trying to shave off the fat. Um, you do a lot of gambling stuff. You do a lot of models, I assume. Like what wh what do you do like just in general for like if, if you were trying to help someone try to build like, like a gambling model or something like that, just in general. Um, what, are, what are some of the keys to, you know, shaving off some of that fat, getting, getting rid of some of that noise to figure out what the signal is? Because it seems like it seems like you aren't locked into every stat has meaning, which some people have. You know what I mean? Um, so if, if you were trying to sh show someone like, OK, here's how I would model, you know, X, like you were saying. Uh, you know, just red zone play, something like that, even though we're working with small sample sizes, like how would you do it in football when there is so much noise? Yeah, it's it's a challenge. Um, first of all, like the, the difference with sports betting um, when you compare that to like a lot of other pursuits. I mean, I guess DFS is, is similar, but the DFS community is so much. Um, people tend to be a lot more 
human and, and nice to one another. Uh, sports betting is just so ruthless. Um, your competition, because I think part of the reason is because lines move, right? So it's it's a completely fluid market. Um, whereas DFS, they set the price and that's the price. And so some guy getting on a podcast and hyping a particular player, while he may affect a, a small percentage of ownership. Like he's not going to ruin that price for future bets for himself or screw some other guy if he gets there first and the other guy can't get there. And that's the way sports betting is. So um, obviously, like I'm not going to share all the secrets of like building a model. You're absolutely right. I have built models. My specialty has been developing models for totals. Uh, projecting the total number of points between both teams. I think that there's a significant edge. Uh, that can be had in that field as compared to trying to project the point spreads. I, I think the books are a little bit better at projecting, you know, how many points a certain team should be favored and anticipating the public's response, like how the public is going to side on a particular game. So they know how to like kind of shade a number or so, but uh, for totals, I think there's a little bit better edge, but absolutely. Um, you have to be able to, because there's so much that you can look at, right? There's just so much information that you can look at that you have to be able to weed out, like you said, the signal and noise. You have to be able to isolate the things that are the most important and be willing to not study or just minimize the amount of focus that you spend looking at certain things. And back like a long time ago when I was first getting into um sports betting and sides and things of that nature. Like I cared about trends, you know, I cared about like, Oh, well, what's this team the last 10 games at, at, at this opponent's uh, stadium. And what's this team when they go travel on Monday night, and different things like that. Um, now I don't look at that at all. Like I literally am focused primarily on matchups. I think it's great for DFS too, but especially for sports betting. I mean, this is a matchup sport football is a matchup sport and when you can spend enough time getting to know the uh coaches and their style and what types of things they like to call then you have better understanding you're not always going to be right but a better understanding of what they're going to use against a particular opponent on a given game and then you can try to factor in um a lot of the uh i guess then you start factoring in like the matchups. Okay. We think they're going to do this. So how does that matchup look and which team does that favor and by how much and how often will they get the opportunity to uh, hit on this matchup? And um, whether it's the pass game, the run game, uh, special teams, red zone. I mean, um, I feel I have found that there is a very high correlation to early down success. I created a metric called early down success rate, which is a custom metric that it's not just pure, you know, what's a team success rate on first and second down, but it goes a little bit beyond that. But it looks at efficiencies on early downs because um, bypassing third down means you're never going to fail third down, which means you're never going to have to kick the ball. You're never going to be faced with one of these decisions that the teams always, you know, they think is, this is analytics is what do we do on fourth down? Well, there are analytics on the first three downs that would uh, help you avoid that decision on fourth down. But um, like there's, a, there's a lot of efficiency gained on early down. So you want to look at how teams perform on early downs, what their tendencies are um, and how they match up against opponents. And of course, a lot of it does come down to, uh, 
what's going to happen in the red zone? What are they going to do when they get into scoring territory? What's their most likely type of play calls? So I, I think one of the things that's definitely helped me is simply the Sharp Football Stats website. I mean, um, when I was designing that and developing it, like I built the whole thing myself. I do all the visualizations. I'm a one-man show at that website, and I've constructed the entire thing basically just from myself. What do I want to know? Like, what do I want to research on a given week? Like, okay, I want to know this, this, that. Well, let me build some visualizations, and I'll just put it up here, and then everybody else can look at it too. So like everything on that site has come from me at one point or another saying, I want to know what a player ranks here, what a team ranks here. Um, I want to, I want to understand the context of this and putting it up there so people can play around with it. So I spend a lot of time, um, obviously sidetracking from like the talk about pure math models, which I, which I've generated and built. And to be honest, I haven't had to adjust those very much because they've been pretty successful. So when something's working, you're not going to spend too much time tweaking it but where i've devoted more of my time is is on the um, analytic side of things and trying to better understand a matchup based perspective on a given week through the lens of past performance as well as accounting for schedule because i think all too often we don't account enough for strength of schedule we hear so much about strength of schedule in the off season based upon prior years win rates for those various teams and then once the season starts we rarely hear discussion after like three or four weeks hey well you know this team's played like a bunch of crappy teams and now they're going to play like this very difficult team and after that another very difficult team like chances are they're probably not as good as what they just illustrated they were the past couple of games but like mass media and all the people out there talking heads like they don't really talk about that at all at that point in time so there are some edges to be gained with understanding uh, strength of schedule as well and implementing that on a very granular level not just like big picture oh this team's power rated here and so i faced a schedule with power teams that are power rated you know third hardest it's it's like looking at What's the pass rushes that I faced? What's the um, deep passing defenses that I faced year to date? What's the, you know, there's so many different ways that you can look at strength of schedule from that level and all that stuff I've got for free up at Sharp Football Stats. I mean, you can, you can be a member of the public and you can go there and you can see on a given week, what's the team's year to date schedule and then who are they facing this week based upon like 20, 25 different metrics um, that are very granular and level. So I think that's very important to factor in as well. Uh, just just quick, I want a yes, no answer on this one. Um, there, are, there are rumors that you're like the best totals better, the best over-unders better. Um, confirmed, deny. Best in the world. I'm not going to deny that. Um, <laughs> it's more than, you know, that's more than one word. The, the, the answer... To me, is publicly, publicly, I have not seen someone better. So, so yes. But privately, there are other guys out there who work for professional syndicate groups like I do as well. I mean, a lot of the stuff I do, I, I share publicly. I talk on different podcasts and whatnot. But I share my numbers and my information with a syndicated group of professional bettors out in Las Vegas. And we bet larger volumes of money on these games. And... Um, you know, so there are other guys who bet totals, uh, advise other syndicated groups about totals, uh, out there as well as, as myself. And I don't know all of their names and I don't know every single one of those guys. 
But, um, you know, the, the thing that you'll find in, in sports betting, one of the things just for your listeners that I think is very useful, very helpful to know, is that short-term records, obviously, does build into long-term records, and all that is 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 important and helpful because you always want to give yourself the best chance to win. But what's going to define a really successful sports better and how they're going to fare in the future in terms of a predictive nature is not just, oh, I've won my last five bets. Oh, I've, I've won like I'm hitting 70% uh, the first three weeks of the NFL season. It's, it's not that. What it is is how often are you beating that closing number and how long have you had success? The amount that you're able to beat that closing number, so for totals, let's say, I bet the under 47 when it's released at the book Sunday night or, or on Monday morning, let's say, I bet under 47, and that game closes at 44 and a half. Okay, so I have two and a half points of line value there. I beat the closing number by two and a half points. That's, that is, to some of the guys I work with, much more important than whether or not I even win that game. It's that you're beating that closing number by with regularity and by enough points at the end of the day on average over the course of the season. That shows that you're going to have success in the future. And of course, like long term track record. And I've been doing this for over a decade um, and had a lot of success. So um, I certainly am. Don't don't. I'm not the type of guy who goes out there. You'll If you follow me on Twitter, like I rarely will be talking about streaks or my win rates or big wins that I just had nothing like that like I don't I don't like to talk about that uh, but it's obviously something that I that I, I strive for and 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 have achieved in the past but um, I'm certainly not like a, a tout from that perspective who's going to be trying to fill your ears with all these um, great things that I just did recently so that's why it's a it's a question I'm, I try to be a little bit more humble about and just try to try to uh, perform and execute because people are, are dependent upon me and I'm obviously depending upon uh, having success as well. And I really enjoy doing it. So uh, it's, it's a, it's a pursuit of, of pleasure. It's something I'm good at, but it's something that I take extremely seriously too. All right. Well, you don't have to be so humble. All right. What, one question, if you don't mind, before we let you go, What's the most amount of money you've ever made on one single bet? <laughs> um, well, one of the things I, 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 I'm not going to say, I'll, I'll say it's in the five figures. Okay. Um, my group will sometimes get collectively more than that down. Right. But like in, in terms of what I am taking home, it, it, th that's the extent of it. But um, we don't really, dabble too much although we will a little bit in the futures markets where you're able to turn you know a thousand dollar bet into you know thirty thousand dollars if you're like getting extreme hits on different things and so we don't spend quite as much time trying to um and we don't do a lot of parlays right like where you can really get the high payout so for us it's just a lot of straight bets which means betting on a side, betting on a total, things of that nature, um, and just trying to stack wins in, in high high percentages. Um, there are a lot of guys who will have success by hitting lower percentages, but they're parlaying a bunch of things, um, or they're taking some futures bets where they're obviously going to have some losses, but big wins. So, um, you know, those, those guys, 
there, there are chances where you're going to see those guys have like six figure wins um, from time to time. And obviously some of the biggest guys out there are betting um, six figures on, on individual games, you know, sides and totals and that sort of thing. Um, but that's much less, much less frequent, um, uh, much less frequent than, uh, than perhaps what people think. Um, well, I don't, I'm not sure like the common perception of, of, uh, sports betting, but the reality is that professionals such as myself and the guys that I work for competitors in the marketplace, like we, don't, we aren't expecting to win 70, 80% of our games. I mean, that's just, that's completely unattainable, um, over a long period of time. Like our, our goals are to win every single bet that we place. But the reality is like, we are looking to make money every day, every week, every month, every year. And, um, in order to do that, you just have to win more than you lose. You have to beat 52.4% if you're laying minus 110 juice. Um, and so if you're hitting 55, 56, 57%, you're going to be winning. The question is how much, and obviously my goals are higher than that. And, uh, my long-term records and in, in for NFL totals, for example, are higher than that in the 60 range. But, um, on a, on a given week, you're going to have really cold streaks. You're going to have hot streaks. Hell I've had, I've had seasons, uh, where I've produced, uh, records that were sub 50% losing records for myself, for my group, for my clients, uh, like three, four, five, sometimes five weeks in a row. Uh, but you'll still have a winning year overall. And that's because you uh, are managing your bankroll correctly. Um, and those are, those are rare, right? To have like weeks where you're, where you're losing. And I'm not saying like, oh, and six, oh, and seven, oh, and two, like I, I would give up if I could no longer win. Right. But um, you're going to have droughts where you're bad and you're going to have runs when you're really good. And it's about managing your bankroll during those times. So like sort of not answer, going well beyond your question, but um, I think it's useful for people who are listening to this to understand that like even guys who do this for a living and, and have been doing it successfully and the guys that I work with out there, like they will have losing weeks multiple in a row at times. Uh, they will have uh, seasons where they're hitting 55, 54%. Like it's, it's, it doesn't sound glamorous, but you're still making money. It's not what you want, but um, it's not always like a, a life where you're, you know, cracking bottles of crystal and, and, and winning every single bet that you make and that type of stuff. Uh, when you're doing this as a professional and making enough bets, um, it's going to be very difficult to have those types of glamorous, you know, runs that everybody thinks what pro sports bettors are, are having. So hopefully at least we get a little bit of, um, a little bit of that flavor on here as well to let people know it's not always, uh, you know, as, as easy or as, um, as profitable as some people think out there, but, um, it's, it's, it, it sure is how fun to win. And, uh, and obviously that's what everybody's trying to do. Yeah. So I, I think this whole episode was pretty fun, informative, and, you know, we, we covered a lot from the, from the drafts through gambling and uh, this is exactly what I think we want to talk about in this little space. So uh, before we let you go, anything you're working on that you're releasing in like the near or immediate future that you want to let people know about? Uh, yeah, no, first of all, I appreciate you guys having me on. Um, certainly enjoyed it. And uh, what I've been working on basically since uh, mid-February has been my 2018 football preview, which is a, 
a book um, that I put together. I put it together last year, sold it up on Amazon, doing it again um, this year. And I go through every single team. I use a lot of the visualizations that I create special for, some of which are on the website, some of which are special for uh, the magazine. But I basically try to break down what I think is going to happen this upcoming year from uh, win totals to uh, outcomes of, of players to how they're going to fit into the offenses to just so much stuff that you, you know, everybody's doing right. Everybody's kind of thinking about this stuff, but I, I put it all together in this book and I'm working on it now. I've got a, uh, I'm not going to announce it right now, but I got a special uh, guest who's editing it this year and he's going to contribute a little bit to it as well. I think people are going to be pretty excited to see that person's name on there, but um, uh, that'll be done in late June. So uh, well before training camps start, I'll have that out. And um, I mean, that's, that's what I've been working on every night till 2 a.m. at least, uh, you know, for the last couple of months. And I'll keep working uh, for the next couple until it's done. I love doing it and, and sharing it with people. It takes a lot of work, but um, just like you guys put a lot of work into your stuff and it turns out great and it's good information people want to read, uh, I try to do the exact same. So that's 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 by my pursuit and uh, got a couple more months left, but uh, late June is hopefully when it'll be out. Awesome. So go check out uh, Warren Sharp's preview with uh, John Gruden. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Not John. Not John. Uh, definitely not John. You know, that's that's interesting. We didn't touch on that. You know, what, what do you guys think? Do you think that he's sandbagging everyone and that he's got a, a, a plan that's more astute for uh, no chance? He's, he's not he's not he's not bell checking people. I, I think. <laughs> I don't think he has the ability to. You think he's got the Belichick bluffing him? Like Belichick's obviously like on the mic, either playing coy or just thinking that sports writers are talking about box score stats, right? Like he very obviously values analytics. He values edges. Don um, Gruden just might be speaking from the heart, singing from it. Yep. Well, I I, I know I know from having talked to some people involved with the team that they definitely he definitely has a couple of analytics guys who are there and and assisting him the, the thing that always it always comes down to right is how much is this guy actually going to trust them and the hard part becomes when you're a guy like Gruden who has the name who has the power and you've been gone for a while like it's just like these young young NFL head coaches want to come in and kind of make a mark like he's going to want to make a lasting mark that that you know he doesn't get laughed out of the league in a, in a couple of years. Obviously, he's got his ridiculous contract, so good for him. I'm like not knocking that one so whatsoever. Congratulations. But, I mean, it's probably not in their best interest to like keep paying him when he's not coaching. So they, wanna, <laughs> they want him to have success and have him hanging around for a while. Um, but, yeah, how much is he going to listen to those guys who are giving him advice on optimal decision-making? And that's what it comes down to. It's like – what is what are the optimal decisions that um, that you can make? And so, I, I think that's just one of many fascinating storylines that we've got this year uh, because we have seen like the, the tor- I feel like the corners sort of been turned with the Eagles winning the Super Bowl and talking a lot, lot openly about analytics. We've seen the Patriots get there and win in the past, and like you guys said, they don't talk about it quite as much. They try to sound less intelligent about it when in reality like i'm going down every like my checklist of what every team should be doing and like these guys are doing most all of those things so they obviously have ernie adams up there helping them with analytics i mean they are far in advance beyond what most any other team is um 
So, but I feel like with the Eagles now talking about it more, I think that the league is going to be more open to it in the future and see the success of it. And obviously they got to look at the zebra data and that sort of thing. So I think it's going to spread more, but you know, you definitely have a guy like with a little bit of a hardcore old school personality who is very blunt with his opinions and just has a very unique style. And I'm fascinated to see, um, you know, how, how well that they're going to do, because obviously last season was a big disappointment, I think, across the board, especially at quarterback position, which is so vital. Uh, very poor season overall. So I'm interested to see the decision Gruden makes and the types of plays that they're going to run and how they can get back on track. In it's going to be a really interesting AFC West uh, with potentially you know, Denver looking for a quarterback and and you've got Kansas City with Mahomes there. And of course, you've got uh, the Chargers who really are a great team, in my opinion, really solid top to bottom. But whether it was a couple injuries or a couple bad uh, personnel decisions in terms of usage um, and, and just a, a kicker, like get a freaking kicker who can make a field goal, uh, they did a lot worse than they probably should have done last year. So that division is going to be do. They always do that. They yeah. can never get out of their own way. Like, I'm with you. Like, they're clearly a talented team. They just do some stupid shit every single year. I wish Phillip Rivers would have, like, just this season that he could remember, you know, like one good run towards the end of his career. I wish that so much for him because he's, he, he really cares about the game. He's the type of guy that a lot of people probably won't remember because, you know, especially like 10 years down the road, right? Because he's playing in the era where you've got Rogers and Brady and breeze and Manning was there, uh, Peyton of course. And, and so you got all these other great quarterbacks. And, and then even if you step below that, you got like Roethlisberger types and Phillip rivers is kind of off to the side and he's doing crazy things when his team is down and he makes some dumb mistakes and throws some interceptions. And, but like, I just wish he could get one good run where his coaches were making intelligent decisions and he wasn't turning the ball over and key points. And, uh, cause, cause I just like watching the guy play like at, at heart, like I'm a fan of no team. I'm a fan of efficiency, but he's a guy that I think, you know, I just like, I just like when he's at his top of his game because he's just so fiery and competitive. Um, so I'll, I'll, he's a guy, type of guy that I'll miss when he's gone. And I think he's, he's only got another year, couple of years left in him. Um, so we'll, we'll see if he gets the chance to ride off into the sunset or if, uh, you know, <laughs> it ends up like it's been ending up the last, uh, what, seven, ten years for them. Yeah. He's got the length of the field to go. No timeouts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, I, I mean, yeah, this was a lot of fun. So I, I think that's going to conclude episode 72 of Set in the Edge. We'll be back next week with uh, somebody. We'll, we'll grab somebody to do a little, I guess, pre-draft sesh. Uh but uh, thanks everyone for coming on. We'll be back next week. Talk to you guys then.